All right, friends, let's see if I can make nearly as much sense of this story for you all. I'm not sure. I'm sensing a theme this week, to be completely honest with everyone right now. Um, I told uh, the students in chapel this week that the sermon prep was really hard for me. It was a sermon on justice, and I was struggling with how to get at it well. And, and today's sermon was really hard for me too, but for a very different reason. Uh, to be honest, I struggle with this parable. I'm not its biggest fan, and I definitely am not a big fan of preaching it. And it's not because it's not a beautiful, beautiful story of God's generous love and abundant grace. It's, it's because I really don't like how we read it sometimes. Sometimes I feel like we just like slap a quick and easy interpretation onto this parable. We, we let it make us feel better for a moment, and then we move on without reflecting any further. I mean, friends, as you'll see in a moment, I, just as a small example, I'm not sure I think the younger son ever actually does anything like apologizing or repenting. But that's usually the way we tell this story. It's a story about our, right? Like we see ourselves coming to God in repentance after all of our sin and selfishness and being accepted in open arms. This is one reason, I think, that Steve and Pastor Taryn, they have encouraged each and every one of us to read this story week after week with new and fresh eyes listening for what God might be saying to us or how God's Spirit might be moving in our lives. Because it's such a common story, it's so easy for us to go, ah, oh, no, I already know what's going on here. We're good. On top of that, as Taryn pointed out last week, this isn't a parable about one lost son. Right? It's a parable about lost sons. How the younger brother, the elder brother, and the father each respond to the reality of pain and lostness. The younger son is our first loss in the story, the more explicit one. But the elder brother receives the climactic moment, as we talked about last week at the very end. And we realize, hopefully, that he's been overlooked and lost all along. failed in relationships with his family in his own ways. It's a story that, that like yells at us, I feel like, to experience and recognize all of the different ways, the myriad of ways we overlook each other, abandon each other, ignore and despise and reject each other and create this sense of being lost to one another. Now, as much as I, I do struggle with this parable, I did give Taryn a little bit of grief for asking me to preach on it. As much as I struggle with it, I, I love the character of the father in this story, this story about his lost sons. We usually kind of like instinctively view the father as God and God alone. And while that's not wrong, the Father does display and represent God's love for us, it's not exactly right either. 
The father, I think in this parable, is sort of an ambiguous character, a character in a creative story who models multiple truths and callings for us. Because the father does represent and picture God for us as we listen to this story. Right? And, and, and the crazy thing is, the story pictures and shows us a God who's really the one who's prodigal. What does prodigal mean again? Because I feel like you've heard it defined four or five times at this point. Oh my goodness, this is not a Uni 101 class. What does prodigal mean, friends? Lavishness, yes, right? Excessiveness. Overabundance. To the point of, right, like problem. In the younger son's example. We see in the father a God who is lavish, reckless, and prodigious in his love for us. Whether we stand in the place of this kind of wily, scheming, younger son, playing others to get our way in every life circumstance, or whether we stand over here in the place of a little bit of a selfish, self-righteous, barrier-setting older son who wants to draw out expectations as boundaries around love and gracious acceptance of others. Regardless of where we stand, this parable shows us a God and creator who is recklessly lavish in his love and acceptance of us. Because both sons and their situations, I think, are far worse than we often own up to. Again, we tend to make this parable right, like into this beautiful story of repentance and forgiveness. How nice to imagine ourselves as the prodigal son, the younger brother, as sinners who sin boldly but return, finding the sense to repent and get our lives straight and step back towards a loving God who welcomes us like a parent. A beautiful story, but it kind of feels like a romanticized picture of the younger son and of our own stories. Like, I don't know about you all and how you're feeling about your, your closeness to God, the transformation of your life daily. Maybe you've all got it figured out, right? Maybe, maybe you all repented and turns away from your selfishness, and now you lean into God's love, and you are connected with God, and you turn around and look at the rest of us and go, all right, you can make it too. Maybe. But for me... I don't know that my relationship and journey with God looks that clean. And in this parable, the younger son, the one who is welcomed, loved, and celebrated as alive again by his father, I don't think he ever comes close to repenting. I don't see contrition in the younger son's story. I see this sort of like, conniving, scheming self. Right? Junior comes to his senses as he's just spent all of his father's money, all of his family's, right, half of his family's wealth. He spends it all on who knows what. Having a great time. 
And then, in his loneliness, in his pain, in his hunger, in his helplessness, he seems to come to his senses and recall, right? Like, wait a second, daddy still has money, and I might be able to get some more. He, de- he is described in, in uh, the, the, our scripture, our parable, as coming to himself. As he's feeding the pigs, he, he comes to himself. But friends, the self that he comes to seems to be the one who knows that dad will do almost anything he asks. And his planning and his talking to himself which, by the way, in Luke's gospel is a little sign that some scheming is going on. The rich fool in Luke chapter 12, the one who builds new barns to store his stuff rather than giving some things away when he has an overabundance, he talks to himself, comes to himself and says, I should really build some new banks to store all my wealth. The dishonest manager in the next chapter, when he's in trouble for all of, the, all of the backdoor dealing that he's done, he speaks to himself and says, I can solve this problem. The dishonest judge in Luke chapter 18, when he realizes he's like, oh, this stinking widow, she won't leave me alone. He's a judge who Luke tells us doesn't fear God or anyone else. He says to himself, I'll get rid of her. Heck, I'll even do what she wants if, if it just clears up my docket a little bit. The younger son isn't exactly in the best company in coming to himself and speaking to himself. And in his planning and in his groveling to his father, he repeats the term father over and over and over. He says to himself, my father's workers, <laughs> they're living the best life. I'll go to my father. He shows up at home and blurts out, Father, I have sinned. And so even though he says over and over again, right, like to himself and out loud, oh yeah, I'll just tell dad, I don't deserve to be his son anymore. His repeated language of father tells us otherwise. Even further, the way that he repents, the language that he uses, right? He shows up at home and he says, oh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's not an apology, really, right? It might be an admittance. I have sinned against heaven and before you. It sounds kind of nice and proper, but it's an exact quote almost of what Pharaoh says in the Exodus story. Once Pharaoh's reached his wit's end, he calls Moses and Aaron back to him and he goes, okay, you know what, fine. I've sinned, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Go on, get out of here. Is Pharaoh repentant? Dude waits a day and then mounts up his chariots and chases them into the wilderness. Right? Pharaoh's just trying to deal with his problem. Get out. Leave us alone. You've caused enough trouble. I don't know, friends. From my vantage point, I'm not sure the younger son's any more repentant either. I don't know that he has any more change of a heart than Pharaoh does. 
Reverend Dave, uh, David Buttrick, he's a pastor and a professor of preaching. And uh, Dr. Amy Jo Levine, a a, a well-known New Testament scholar, both of them have pointed out that the younger son's strategy really seems to be along the lines of, I got it. I'll go to daddy and use a bunch of religious language and things will be fine. One way or another, I'll get fed. And the wild thing about this story to me is that whether the son is sincere or not, his father doesn't concern himself with expectations or standards of acceptance, right? No, that his dad interrupts him. He preempts him from even finishing off the script he worked out in his head. The father is consumed with joy and he wants to celebrate as soon as his son returns home. He wants all the people around him to experience his joy at a son who was lost and is now found. Right? Jesus' parable pictures for us a father willing to, to love generously and give grace without any expectations or restrictions. We see a father who chases down his sons, who puts aside his own pain, his own pride, his own authority to seek out, take in, and love his children. The father runs out to the younger brother, takes him in with word and deed before his son can even make a case for his reacceptance. The language of resurrection that the dad uses over and over again. My son who was dead and who has returned back to life speaks to the depths of the father's joy at just the return of his son. Again and again we see a father who allows for so much selfishness and failure on the part of his children as he chases after them in love. It's a beautiful picture of our God, and it's a true picture of our God. But on the other hand, the father in this parable, I don't think, I don't think he's simply a picture of God's overwhelming grace and freely given love, because the father also seems to like exemplify some of our mistakes, and he models for us how to properly live in the world, even in light of our failures and our shortcomings with each other. The Father shows us both a picture of God's deep and abundant love and a picture of of who we're called to be. Right? I mean, the Father really does seem to make some mistakes. This parable is the third in a set that begins at the beginning of Luke 15, as you've heard Pastor Taryn talk about and preach on. Right? In the first one, one out of a hundred sheep is lost. And in the second one, one out of ten coins is lost. I mean, to the extent that we might be a little surprised that the owner of a hundred sheep looks out and notices that one is missing. And even with the one out of ten coins, the loss is something that we might not expect to be like immediately evident. I, for example, right? Go, go do an experiment at home today. Put 10 coins in a pile or in a line on the table and then remove one 
and glance at it and tell me that it's just abundantly clear to you that it's now nine instead of 10. But in this parable, we have a father who only has two sons. And this father, and we as readers, are often convinced that the younger son is the one who is lost and prodigal. And that's true. But we find at the end of the parable that the son who's been lost all along is the elder son. Right? The shepherd with a hundred sheep, he spots the missing sheep and goes to find them. The woman notices her missing coin among the ten, but the father with only two sons struggles to count correctly. Because, friends, only one son is invited to the neighborhood party at the end of our story. We're allowed to see a lot of ourselves in the father in this story, I think. And when the younger son demands to leave, we don't hear any words of wisdom or warning or entreaty from the father. In fact, he kind of seems to indulge his younger son's problematic, painful, and selfish choices. He liquidates half of his estate and hands it over. Now, you all tell me, right? We've talked about this before, retirement accounts. Who all's got one? Who all dreams of having one, right? Like, now, now, tell me, if one of your kids comes to you and says, hey, mom, dad, I really think it's time. I think it's time you, uh, you give me my inheritance. It's coming to me one way or another. You're not long for this world. Sooner or later, you gotta go. So why don't you just go ahead, sell off half of that retirement account and give it to me. Would you do that? No, because that's ridiculous. Like, not only is that ridiculous in terms of like, uh, child, I need to survive. But it's also ridiculous in terms, are, are you really going to give your child, your 19-year-old, your $100,000 and say, yeah, you got this. You're mature enough. But the father in our story, he liquidates half of his living estate and gives it to his younger son. And in addition to overindulging what seems to be a beloved younger child, the father also seems to neglect, or at least fails to affirm, his older son. Almost as if he takes his sonship and his presence in his household for granted. Because our parable begins with, a man had two sons. And most of us, including the dad in the parable, lose count. The shepherd who searched for and found his sheep, the woman who searched for, cleaned her whole house and found her coin, they call the entire neighborhood to come and celebrate with them. But no one runs out to invite the elder son to the feast. No one even seems to notice that he's not there while the music is getting cranked up and that fatted beef is just being sliced up and served. But despite 
what could be read as, as failures and oversights on the father's part that have ruptured relationships with his sons. Despite that truth, the father, when he realizes his elder son is missing and in pain, he immediately sets out to return his lost son home. Immediately, again, without regard, he takes off when he sees his younger son in the distance. And when he hears his elder son is out in the cold, he goes out to him. He doesn't summon him in. The father didn't seem to know until this moment that the elder son was the child truly lost to him. But once he realizes it, once that recognition comes, he does what the shepherd and the woman did. He, realizing his loss, a son, a son whom he loves, he goes out to restore the relationship. He steps out of the party to plead with and urge his son to join them. And the father's love for his son, it shows up right now in his language. Which is interesting to me because although dad welcomed the younger son home with open arms, with gifts, in this parable he never says a word to his younger son. Not once. But right now, with his older son, who he realizes is hurt and in pain and feeling separated from everyone else, all he has is words, and he puts them to good use to heal relationships. The father goes out and he reminds his son that he really and truly is one of his beloved children. And then he encourages his son to see the beauty and the joy, and even the, the fragility of a family reunited. He assures his son of his close and, and continuous, right, his perpetual bond, the, per, the, the bond that exists between the two of them. And then he tries to restore or maybe create for the first time a relationship between his two kids because he corrects his son's phrasing. The elder son says, really, this son of yours, you bring him back in and throw him a party? And you can see his father in his response say, not this son of mine, but child, this brother, this brother of yours, he was dead and he's now alive. We have to celebrate. At the end of this story, while we don't get all the answers and we don't know exactly what this family's future looks like, we do see a father. A father in whose eyes, right, were either of his children to be missing would have a family that's not whole. So the dad in this parable when we read him from this angle, right, as a kind of a third example of, of human behavior, of human extravagance and ways of relating to others, he's seen to me as one who makes mistakes but is willing to learn and grow in them. He is willing to reach out in generous love in the places and the ways that he's failed 
to relate properly to others. And at the same time, in the same moment, in the Father's extravagant and lavish, even reckless love, we see the model and image of our Creator who chases after us with a grace-filled love, unbound, not held back by any sort of, of, of expectations or strictures, the sorts of things we tend to as modern Christians place upon our acceptance and forgiveness and grace. So however you read this parable, I think we have a lot to learn from this father. Whether we read him as a human example of how to respond rightly to our mistakes or as an expression of our Savior's deep love for us, even as the broken, reckless, selfish, and often hateful people that we are. So, as we end this series on the prodigal, the prodigal sons, a prodigal father, I would ask that you stop for a moment before we rush to, to simply viewing this parable as one about repentance and forgiveness. Because in many ways, I think it might be better thought of as a story of radical acceptance, of generous grace, of lavish love given without boundaries and without standards. Because if we hold just for a moment, if we hold at an arm's length the rush to read repenting and forgiving into this parable, then it does something for us that's more profound than just repeating well-known messages. It stands before us with, with simple callings. Like recognize that the one who is lost to you may be right there in your own household. It offers us the calling uh, like do whatever it takes to find the lost and then celebrate with others, both so that you might share joy and so that your community might help you and prevent you from losing the recovered ever again. Don't wait, this story tells us until you can muster the ability to forgive, because we might never find it. Don't stew in your own sense of being ignored, because there's nothing that we can do to retrieve the past, to retrieve the moments lost in anger and in bitterness. Instead, this parable tells us, go have lunch, go celebrate. And invite others into your love and celebration. If the repenting and forgiving come later, so much the better. But if not, you can still know that you have done what is necessary to begin a process. A process that just might lead to reconnection and reconciliation. And that sort of hard work, we get the chance to open a space for wholeness. 
The parable tells us, lay down your anger and your expectations of others and instead just celebrate the resurrection, the inclusion in God's family that Jesus' love offers to each and every person. Friends, finding lost things It's never going to be easy, whether it's sheep or coins or the people around you. It's going to take work. Letting go and welcoming others in love, it requires effort on our part. But in that sort of effort, there's the potential for wholeness and beauty and joy. Let's pray together, friends. Oh, loving Father, we stand before you as a broken community and broken people. And as we read again this beautiful, beautiful story, Jesus, we are thankful. Thankful for your radical and abundant and generous acceptance of us, even in our failure even in our brokenness. And this morning, Jesus, we pray that you will pour your spirit out on us, reshape our hearts and our minds, help us to live out that same sort of abundant and unrestricted love. It's so easy, God, when people step into our midst, into our communities, into our families, God, to to see the problems with them, to see the things that, that we really need them to fix before they can stick around. God, we thank you for the reminder that you accept us freely and openly, that you pursue us and chase us down even in our selfishness and our sin. God, let us see those who are lost among us and chase them down with the same grace and love and abandonment of expectations. In your name we pray this morning, holy God. Amen.